If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 674. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook, the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. Of course, if you're watching this podcast or listening to this podcast on July 26th, I've got a new course out either today or tomorrow, Copperheads. You're going to want it. It actually covers some of what I'm going to talk about today in this particular episode, but you're going to want this new course on the Copperheads. It's awesome. And uh, I mean, as all the McClanahan Academy classes are, you're going to want it. You can support the show by buying those classes. It's a great way. Also, you can click on that super thanks button under the YouTube uh, videos. If you're watching on YouTube, you can go to anchor.fm. You can subscribe there. Uh, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can support me that way. Throw a few pennies my way. That's a great way to support the show. All those financial resources are necessary to keep this podcast free of charge. It's why I do it. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking local and acting locally. Share it around on social media and send me those show requests. This is a listener-generated episode. It's a piece that came out in 2017, five years ago. But it's it's never a bad time to talk about this. Uh, it's from the Washington Post. And it was published after uh, uh, General Kelly and the Trump administration had made some comments that were Seem, that seemed to be rather conciliatory towards the South in the war. In fact, remember, Trump himself had done this when he called Robert E. Lee a great general. So the problem with the, the left had with this, of course, is that you can't say these things. Neo-Confederate slavery! And, of course, they want to just run around with those little stupid sayings. And this is exactly what this piece does without doing that, without actually coming out and explicitly saying, Neo-Confederate slavery! But that's the whole point of this. And... I'm going to go through it. Now, this piece is written. It was November of 2017 when it was published. It's written by Carol Emberton. Now, Carol Emberton is a professor at the University of Buffalo. Uh, She specializes in the Civil War era. And if you go out and look at her social media feed, she's got a a book out now. I don't even know what the heck the, the, the point of the book is. It looks like it's a personal memoir of her time from southerner to northern i don't even know uh, it looks so stupid why anybody would buy it i have no idea but um, it's a it's a it's a it's a mea culpa i guess or in some ways maybe a um, a personal memoir of a leftist that people would want to read i mean I, I don't get it who it would be the worst thing ever to read it sounds so stupid i don't even know why a publisher would publish the darn thing but regardless um, she's got a book out about some kind of journey of hers in some way. I have no idea. But anyways, let's get to this piece because this piece is indicative of what kind of historian Carol Emberton really is, which is a bad one. Um, and it's funny because 
The title of the piece is The North Tried Compromise, The South Chose War. Now, this is the tired, ridiculous stupidity that comes out of these northern historians, or I guess in her case, southerner who's living in the north, comes out of these establishment historians. Let's use that term, establishment historians of the last, say, I don't know, 20, 30 years. They ignore the historical record and cherry-pick things that supposedly fit their agenda. And their agenda is slavery, neo-confederate, neo-confederate, slavery. That's it. You see, because here, let me let me boil this down to what they would say. I'm going to give you the real history about what happened here. And then what they would say is neo-confederate, slavery. Because at the end of the day, the whole point is that they believe that any concession to the South was wrong. They're operating from that position. So in other words, they don't really want the Union. They wanted what came after the war. They really want the war. They want the war to forge their righteous cause myth on the rest of the United States. They're the ones who are not interested in compromise at all. And I'm going to give you some hypotheticals on this to, to give you an example of this. So she begins the piece. In an interview Monday, White House Chiefs of Staff John F. Kelly remarked that the lack of an ability to compromise led to the Civil War. Kelly was responding to a question about the decision of an Episcopal church in Alexandria, Virginia, to remove a plaque honoring Confederate General Robert E. Lee, whom he called an honorable man, driven by his conscience to secede from the Union. By blaming a failure of compromise for the Civil War, Kelly repeated a well-worn tenet of the lost cause narrative that valorizes the Confederacy and its leaders like Lee. In this narrative, the failure to compromise is laid at the feet of radical abolitionists and northern politicians, including the new elected president, Abraham Lincoln, who gave Southerners no choice but to secede. Well, this is true. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's in black and white. You can actually go out and read where Lincoln was writing letters to Republicans saying, don't compromise. The abolitionists were very clear. They were not going to compromise with the South on anything. So where is the... This is, this is the lost cause. No, that's actual history of what was happening in the 1850s and 60s. Now, Lincoln, if you take reading Abraham Lincoln at McClanahan Academy, I, I give you a speech where he talks about we should hold the Missouri Compromise as sacred. and We should always look to that. And then by 1860... Uh, it was Lincoln saying, don't compromise. And I'll talk about this in terms of Congress and how that works. And I, I've said this before on this podcast, but it's, it's never a bad time to show how stupid these people really are on the other side. But it was slavery and the refusal of Southern slaveholders to compromise on slavery that launched the Civil War. In fact, the secession crisis of 1860-61 was the culmination of a decade-long movement led by ultra-radical pro-slavery fire-eaters. After decades of compromise between the North and South, the election of Lincoln spurred an almost paranoid anxiety about slavery's future that made compromise untenable and war virtually unavoidable. Is that true? No. War could have been avoided. My first question to uh, Professor Emberton, I keep forgetting her name because it's she's so unforgettable. My first question to Emberton would be this. If this is true, 
right? Then why wasn't there war between November and April 18, November 1860 and April 1861? This is true, right? If it was true that um, Southerners wanted war and that they were pushing for war, why was there no war for all of those months, four months? Why didn't war happen? If Southerners were just hell-bent on going to war, why wasn't there war? Was it because the North was unwilling, or the South was unwilling to compromise at this point? No. It was because the North was not pushing war. It was because there was a truce. They were going to try to work this out in some way. Remember, even in March of 1861, when Lincoln takes office, March 4th, there were southern states that had rejected secession. They could have come up with some kind of compromise on this. There's no question about it. Why was war unavoidable? Obviously, it was avoidable because Buchanan avoided it for nearly four months. So, how was it unavoidable? <laughs> this is a question these dopes can never answer. That technically made Kelly correct. There was a failure of compromise. Yes, because Lincoln said no compromise. But lamenting it would, it would uh, without addressing the role of slavery at its roots reflects the flawed Southern version of the Civil War history that it nourishes the white nationalism currently poisoning American politics. <laughs> this is so stupid. Remember, this is a professor of history at University of Buffalo who is supposedly brilliant and writing, writing for the Washington Post. Now, let me put it, let me explain the 1850s, or at least, let's go to 1860. And we'll put it in terms that people can understand today. Because I know, well, the thing is, what I'm going to say here, her response is going to be, slavery, neo-confederate. All right. So, let's say right now, we have the left and the right. We'll just use those terms. Forget Republican and Democrat. We'll just put it this way. And you take an issue like gun control, okay? So, let's say today... There are people, let's say we have, we have federal property, right? We take out the states because we have, supposedly these leftists and rightists agree that the states can regulate firearms any way they want, okay? Now, we know that's not, that's, I'm using a hypothetical, we know that's not the case because you, know, you got that part of it that's kind of in this gun control debate. But let's just take that. Everyone agrees that the states are out of the question. You can't regulate firearms. The, the, the pro-gun people can't tell the anti-gun people in their states what to do and vice versa. Okay? So we have the states controlling that. But we have federal property. And the Supreme Court has come out and said that any firearm regulations in federal property is unconstitutional. All of them. There's no regulations you can have. So the pro-gun people are in, have a very strong position because this is what the court has said. In federal property, you can't regulate firearms. But the anti-gun people would say, that's not good enough. And they keep pushing the agenda. So the pro-gun people say, okay, to have a spirit of compromise, because these anti-gun people are never going to stop. They're just going to keep chirping, chirping, chirping. They're going to keep trying to, they're gonna keep trying to pass legislation, do whatever, even though the Supreme Court has said this is the case. So the... The pro-gun people say, fine, you know what we'll do? We'll give you background checks, red flag laws, we'll prohibit certain firearms, we'll have a waiting period. How about all of that? We're actually going to give you some gun control in the federal territories. And the anti-gun people say, no, no compromise. It's no guns or nothing. 
Now, who is unwilling to compromise in that position? Is it the pro-gun people or the anti-gun people? We've got the Supreme Court saying all legislation is unconstitutional, but the pro-gun people still say, all right, we'll give you this. And the anti-gun people say, no, no guns, no guns. Now, let's move that to 1860. You've got the Supreme Court, which in Dred Scott, now we can all agree that Dred Scott was a, was a stupid decision. Substantive process should not have been used. But anyways, we've got the Supreme Court, and I'm just going to take it from the position of Southerners in 1860, and actually Democrats too, North and South. Supreme Court has said that regulating slavery in the territories by the general government is unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. You can't do it. So they've got, they've got, the Supreme, they've got a Supreme Court decision on their side. The, the Republican Party is saying, doesn't matter. We're going to continue to regulate slavery in the territories. You've got a Supreme Court decision. So the South says, okay, all right, that's fine. Uh, we will, let, let's compromise on this. We'll agree to constitutional amendments, which would have done these things, which is, we're going to let you extend the Missouri Compromise to the Pacific. We're going to make sure that you cannot abolish slavery in the, in the, uh, and the states would already exist, and those are the two big things. That's the Crittenden Compromise. We'll agree to it. We'll agree to it. And this is where this woman is so stupid, she doesn't know what was going on here. We'll agree to that. And the North still says, no, no compromise. So who is not really willing to compromise in this particular case? Is it the South, which would have agreed to the Crittenden Compromise? Would have agreed to these amendments, or was it the North? In fact, even the Corwin Amendment, which would have made slavery permanent in the Southern states... Southerners that were still left in the Congress agreed to it. You know who didn't? New England. So what, what are Southerners to think about this? I mean, all right. So you're saying that you're, you're telling us that you're not going to deal, you're not going to uh, hurt slavery in the states that already exist, but then you won't agree to an amendment which would make it permanent because that's what you say you won't do, even though you say you can't do that anyway. That's what Lincoln is saying. And yet, we agree to compromise. We'll extend the Missouri Compromise, even though the Supreme Court has said that's illegal. We'll agree to an amendment to do this, and yet you still say you won't compromise. Well, who's not compromising? Is it the South or the North? Now, the response would be slavery, neo-Confederate slavery, because it's still slavery. You're, you're saying that you would have accepted slavery. Well, I'm saying what the people of the United States would have accepted in 1860, because overall, the entire United States, most people were not really against a compromise that would have extended slavery to the territories. In fact, I think if you'd have put in Crittenden uh, to the Pacific, if you put Crittenden compromise on the ballot and let people vote on it, it would have been voted up by a crushing majority. People would have wanted it. So it's hard for us to understand that in, in 2022, but in 1860, most Americans were not really that bothered by slavery. I mean, they didn't really want it. If they were in the North, they didn't really want it around them. But they weren't really bothered by it. As long as it stayed in the areas where it's supposed to stay and it didn't come into their areas, they're okay. Beginning in the early 1850s, the dummy says, fire eaters had urged secession as the only way to guarantee the continued protection of slavery in the face of what they saw as undeniable conspiracy of abolitionism. Now, let me say this. John Brown didn't help the situation. When you have someone that is leading an insurrection that's going to kill slave owners, that's, that's pretty clear that these people want to kill you. And there was a lot of incendiary uh, events. And there's a new book about this uh, by Abbeville Institute Press that gets into this. Uh, it's by Jonathan White. 
The title is like 50 words long. I can't remember the title. It's a terrible title. But it gets into the abolitionists uh, and what they were doing in a place like Alabama to stir some of this fear of violence against them. They had Kansas. They had they had John Brown, John Brown in both cases, John Brown in Kansas, John Brown in Virginia. They had examples. What, what are they supposed to think? You're going to, you want to kill us. You're calling us devils. We're not even human beings anymore, right? The growing cotton economy also contributed to the desire to protect the peculiar institution. No longer a regrettable system that thrust upon them by history, slavery become, in the words of South Carolina John C. Calhoun, a positive good. Well, again, she takes that completely out of context because he never said it was a positive good in the abstraction. As an abstraction, in the abstract, he said it was a positive good that existed in the South at this particular time, in this particular place. He even said in the speech, I'm not defending slavery as an abstraction. I'm defending it as it exists now because what are we going to do about it, essentially? This is what Jefferson had said, but the wolf by the ears, that's what he was talking about. They didn't know what to do with it. Because Northerners weren't interested in taking a whole bunch of former slaves into their states. They had laws against it. What are you going to do with them? They didn't want them in the territories. So what are you going to do with them? Well, this is Lincoln. Okay, well, then we'll ship them out. That's colonization. Anyone who refused to accept this new dictum was slavery's enemy. In spite of fire eater suspicion and agitation, Northerners were actually more than willing to compromise with them and meet many of their demands. They were? Well, they weren't. <laughs> they weren't in 1860. Maybe they were in 1850. But 1860? No. They weren't at all. This is where. I mean, does she forget the last 10 years of the, 18, the, the 1860? She's saying 1850. The Compromise of 1850 even included a revamped fugitive slave law that required all Northerners to assist in returning suspected runaways and deny those apprehended the right to trial, drawing howls of protest from abolitionists. You know what they did? They refused to enforce it. <laughs> in Northern states, these are personal liberty laws. I guess she forgets that. Southerners are saying, well, golly, you're not really willing to do what you said you're going to do. This is where Daniel Webster goes back to Boston and starts rounding up fugitive slaves, and people are ticked. You can't do that. He said, this is the compromise. It's what we said we were going to do. So when you get personal liberty laws, Southerners are saying, you're breaking the compromise. You're not, even will you're not willing to do this. We gave you all of this, and you're not willing to do this? Come on. You can see I mean, who's not willing to compromise here. It's not the South. Now, again, from 2022, anytime we talk about slavery and you can say, well, it's wrong. Okay, yeah, I get it, right? I mean, I understand 2022, we're not, nobody's advocating for slavery. No one's saying this is a good thing. But if you put yourself back in 1860, who is not compromising? It's not the South. This agreement reflected most, if not all, the fighter eaters' demands. It reinforced slavery's constitutional protections and loosens its territorial limitations. Lands acquired from Mexico, except for the new state of California, will be open to slavery via popular vote. These compromises, however, failed to satisfy fire eaters and their insatiable desire to dictate American domestic and foreign policy. They wanted unambiguous and eternal protections allowing for the expansion of slavery into the Western territories and beyond. Uh, well, they got the Supreme Court decision of Dred Scott that said all these compromises were illegal. I mean, so the Supreme Court sided with them. I mean, look, this is, this is bad history by a bad historian. This is really bad stuff. The ensuing decade featured guerrilla warfare in Kansas. Well, not really. Um, 
it was uh, John Brown slaughtering people, committing homicide at Pottawatomie Creek. You had a couple, hit some drunk guys uh, throw a few printing presses out in, in Lawrence, but there really wasn't a whole lot going on there. The real violence was against slave owners. Now, you did have armed camps going into Kansas. You had the, the uh, New England Immigrant Aid Society, which was sending weapons, Beecher's Bibles. You had Southerners arming up and going into Kansas. There's no doubt about this. I mean, this is well documented. And there's an uneasy truce most of the time between these two factions. But um, the violence, the really nasty stuff, was all perpetrated by abolitionists, not Southerners. Attempts to gain a foothold for slavery abroad and increasingly volatile rhetoric both in and out of Congress. The rhetoric reflected that these ultras had rejected compromise, even if they hadn't persuaded their fellow Southerners to join them yet. Wait a second here. Where are the abolitionists in this? Where is, uh, where is Sumner lisping all around the Congress so that in the Senate so he gets beat with a cane because he's making fun of Pierce Butler's speech impediment. Where's that? Where's people? Where is Henry Ward Beecher calling Southerners devils? Where is Sumner saying these people are drunken vomit and spewing of an easy civilization? Where's that? I mean, the the abolitionists, the Northerners are completely innocent in all of this. Of course they're not. The rhetoric was supercharged, and you can say it was on both sides. Though I would say Southerners were more willing to compromise than Northerners over and over and over again, even when it worked against them. Emboldened by the inaction of weak and complicit presidents like Millard Fillmore and James Buchanan, along with a dramatic break with the Democratic Party at the convention of April 1860, fighters prepared for their ultimate show of strength. Yeah, these weak presidents. It was Millard Fillmore and James Buchanan. Well, they, she skipped over Franklin Pierce. I guess he was a strong guy, right? But, I mean, I, I love Franklin Pierce. Pierce is great. But um, Buchanan wasn't weak. Buchanan actually tried to use military force to provision Fort Sumter. He did. And the Congress voted him down. The Congress voted down all these measures because Buchanan was going through Congress. He was, doing the, the, he was going through the process legally instead of illegally like Lincoln did. And you know what? There was no war. Isn't that amazing? When you actually went through the Congress, the Congress saying, no, no, we're not going to war. We're not doing that here. This is not going to happen. So who really was the person pushing war? Their moment came with the election of Lincoln. Hardly an abolitionist. Lincoln, nevertheless, embodied all that the Southern slave owners feared in the Ordinance of Secession. And issued only six weeks after the election. South Carolina delegates refused to mention the new president by name, but quoted from his 1858 House Divided speech, in which he declared that government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free to white South Carolinians. This was proof that slavery was destined for ultimate extension. On December 24th, the Secession Convention adopted the resolution declaring the Union dissolved. And this is the new thing that these, that these nincompoops try to do, that the Union was dissolved. Uh, the Union still existed, as Democrats pointed out. I mean, if it didn't, they wouldn't have a Congress and a Navy and an Army and all the other things, banking houses, trade, all that stuff, diplomats. All that still existed. The Union wasn't dissolved. It's just that South Carolina was out of the Union. It was a Union between them, South Carolina, and the rest of the states that was dissolved. Their Union was dissolved. So these, these people, again, taking this all out of context. While South Carolinians debated disunion, Kentucky Senator and former Vice President John J. Crittenden introduced a proposal to head off the secession crisis. A final compromise to save the Union. 
known as the Crittenden Compromise. This series of proposed constitutional amendments would have guaranteed slavery's existence in perpetuity. It reaffirmed previous compromises, like the opening of slavery in all territories south of 3630, which is the Missouri Compromise Line, a ban on congressional interference with the interstate slave trade, and federal comp compensation for owners of fugitive slaves. Most importantly, no future amendments could alter these or in any way interfere with slavery, providing an ironclad guarantee for the fire eaters. For congressional Republicans, this compromise, which would have allowed for slavery's expansion, was a non-starter. Wait a second here. I thought she said that Southerners weren't willing to compromise. She just called this a compromise. This compromise... Oh, wait. So you're saying the South wouldn't compromise, but here's a compromise. Um, but that wasn't good. They, no compromise. This is a non-starter. <laughs> you can't make up this stupidity. The South is unwilling to compromise. But in this compromise, the North rejected the compromise. Um, does anybody see the, 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 the stupid inconsistency in this? In his inaugural address, Lincoln gestured toward a possible constitutional amendment protecting slavery that existed. But on the question of his expansion, he too was adamant. He would not support it. Allowing slavery to expand wasn't a negotiation, it was capitulation. So in other words, uh, who is the one unwilling to compromise? Well, it sounds like Abraham Lincoln and the Republicans. In fact, let me, let me say this. The Crittenden Compromise was presented to the Senate Committee of 13. Jefferson Davis, who was chairman of the committee, was eight Democrats, five Republicans. Jefferson Davis and Toombs of Georgia would have voted for it, but Davis had a concurrent majority provision on the committee that at least the majority of the Republicans had to support any compromise. So three of the Republicans had to support it. And then the, the Democrats had, would support it too, the majority of the Democrats. Well, in this particular case, all the Republicans were against it. All the Democrats were in favor of it. So Davis and Toombs switched their votes and voted against it. That's why the Crittenden Compromise failed, because Republicans wouldn't support it, because they wouldn't compromise. Yet Southerners were also hostile to the deal, despite its profuse concessions. For them, compromise of any sort was no, this isn't true. That is complete lie. That line right there is a lie. It, and it's, it's a lie. There's no other way to say it. It's a lie. Now she brings up Jefferson Davis. As early as December 2nd, Mississippi Senator and soon-to-be Confederate President Jefferson Davis dismissed the very idea of negotiation, saying, no power can save the Union. On December 13th, still two weeks before South Carolina's secession, 30 representatives from the Lower South, the seat of fire eaters insurgency, proclaimed, the argument is exhausted. All hope of relief in the Union through the agency of co committees, congressional legislation, or constitutional amendments is extinguished, and we trust the South will not be deceived by appearances of the pretense of new guarantees. Um, well, certainly there were people that believed that, but the Crittenden Compromise would have passed had Republicans accepted it. It would have passed. If they had just put it to the vote of Democrats, it would have passed. But the reason Davis didn't do that is because he knew this would never stop. It needed to be a compromise that would be accepted by all parties. Now, why wouldn't Lincoln want it? Well, because Lincoln only worried about the Union. I'm sorry, not the Union, his party, not the Union. He only worried about his party, not the Union. An independent nation founded upon the cornerstone of slavery was the best and only way to forward to protect the South's way of life, according to Confederate Vice President Alexander H. Stevens. Again, uh, we could even, I, I've talked about the cornerstone speech on this particular podcast years ago. You can go back and get that. I'm not going to rehash what I said there. Uh, but even Stevens said that was taken out of context in some ways. Uh, but Southerners are certainly saying that, you know, the, the Constitution and this the use of the Declaration was improper and inaccurate. Um, but regardless, 
Others had tired of compromise as well. The small yet vocal contingent of radical abolitionists who had long called for an immediate end to their slavery added much kindling to the fire-eaters' conflagration. Their constant agitation on the issue turned the slavery question into a moral crusade. In such a worldview, compromise on slavery was not only unlawful, but also sinful. Right, so, uh, but that was going on. So, so they're the ones that weren't really willing to compromise. Southerners would have done it. And the, the record is very clear about this. Southerners would have agreed to the Crittenden Compromise. They would have. And when you get to the to the peace conference, they, they would have done that too. So I'm going to skip over a part here. I'm going to finish up with the last two paragraphs. From the founding of the Republic through 1860, Northerners and Southerners went to great lengths to find a way to make slavery work. But in the end, it was the South's unwillingness to compromise that ultimately launched a war that led to slavery's demise. No, that, that's not true. Southerners would have compromised. They would have done it. It was... Lincoln's desire to reinforce Sumter and Pickens that led to the war because we didn't have war for four months. It didn't exist. Without a full accounting of the Southerners' role in this history, we risk reiterating the old Southern apologies for slavery and the Civil War in which figures like Lee are seen as victims of failed negotiations with the North rather than defenders of an inhumane and immoral institution. But it also raises the question, why do we continue to champion compromise when it's so long when it was so long used to further the cause of human injustice? That's the real point of this piece. She gets to it at the end. Perhaps in this case, the failure to compromise should be celebrated rather than sure. Let's celebrate the death of a million people. Let's celebrate the death of the union. Let's celebrate all of that. Let's celebrate this. Why do we continue to champion? See, the whole point is she doesn't want. She doesn't believe compromise was even should have even happened. But yet, to the people that were fighting this. You're saying that a million deaths was okay. That's how stupid all of this is. At the end of the day, this is what it's really about. These people are anti-reconciliation. They don't believe in what they're saying because she actually contradicted herself in the piece. But yet, the end of this is what it really is. Uh, even if the North, well, even the South wanted to compromise, the Crittenden compromise, we shouldn't have compromised. There shouldn't be any compromise. That's the point. So... Uh, I love to, to talk about these stupid people because they really are stupid, and as this piece shows. But anyways, hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then. <laughs>